Welcome to Healthcare Perspectives, a podcast by Siemens Healthineers about medical breakthroughs with the power to improve lives everywhere. Today, neurodegenerative diseases. How can we reduce their impact in our aging population and changing world? We did some research along with Parkinson's UK, for example, on the impact of COVID-19 and the restrictions around COVID-19. And what emerged is that it really had a combined effect on the psychological difficulties that people with Parkinson's tend to experience. People tend to feel less in control, more isolated, less capable of leading their life as they used to. In the first of a three-part series on neurodegenerative diseases, Siemens Healthineers Director of Technology and Innovation, Lance Ladick, talks with Claire Mackay, Niccolò Cerati, and Andy Seikin. Hello, I'm Lance Ladick. In just eight years from now, people aged over 60 are expected to outnumber children under the age of 10. Our aging population is largely due to the great steps we've taken in medical technology. And yet, more older people also means an increasing number of people affected by cancer, cardiovascular disease, and the diseases that affect our brains, among others, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and Huntington's. But a longer lifespan is not the only reason for this rising number in cases of neurodegenerative disease. Modern developments have helped lower mortality rates and they have also vastly changed the way we live. We sit more, we eat differently, and we become more isolated during the pandemic, whether that's due to the effects of the remote workplace or the restrictions that have kept us safe. Which of our lifestyle habits affect our cognitive abilities? And can we modify our behavior so that our brains remain fit and healthy, even in old age? It's a kind of new idea that brain health is something that we have some degree of control over. This is Claire Mackay, Director of Imaging Neuroscience at the University of Oxford. For a long time, people have thought that some degree of cognitive decline is an inevitable part of aging and therefore don't necessarily pay the attention to it that one could do. In the medical profession, we have always known that lifestyle plays some role in our brain health. But only recent research has shown us how dramatically our lifestyle can affect our brains. There's been a couple of very influential large studies and reviews done over the last five years that have indicated quite strongly, I think, that what we call modifiable lifestyle factors have quite a big influence on people's ability to preserve their brain health in later life. We think that hearing is really important. We think that diet is important. I would definitely add to that exercise and social stimulation and sleep. What's good for your heart is good for your brain. There's now no doubt that that is true. And how we deliver that advice in ways that help people understand that it's actually really staving off cognitive decline in later life, I think is going to be a big area over the next few years. How can clinicians currently measure these lifestyle factors? We have a questionnaire about sleep, about exercise, about diet, etc., that we ask people to complete as part of their brain health assessment. They're getting MRI scans, they get cognitive assessment, and we evaluate all of those lifestyle factors. 
And we're putting this together as a package that then gets fed straight back into the memory clinic pathway so that when they see their doctor at the memory clinic, all of this information is readily available and helps to inform the diagnosis and it helps to inform the sort of care planning that the doctor does when they see the patient. We have several methods of finding out what is actually going on inside our brains. Blood tests can detect the early presence of disease. And imaging technologies like MRI and PET are among the tools we use to show us how this presence is formed in the brain. But how do clinicians decide between the types of imaging technology available? Why is one patient sent to have a PET scan while another receives an MRI? Here's Tobias Kober, Director of Siemens Health and Ears Innovation Hub in Switzerland. MR is very good for soft tissue. How it works is that you send a radio frequency into the body. You can distinguish white matter, which is the part of the brain which has all the axons, the connections between the neurons, and the gray matter, which is the cortex, so mostly around the brain where most of the neurons are. And then you have the axons, which are in the middle, kind of uh, the white matter part. And this is very well detectable by these changes in protein density and other characteristics. So this gives a great contrast in MR. PET can help us trace specific proteins in our brains that offer an early indication for diseases like Alzheimer's. You inject a radioactive tracer, which is going to a specific part of your body. That might be a region where the metabolism is unusually high. There are more specific traces in the context of dementia especially, which can actually go to places where you find amyloid or tau. These are proteins which are specific to dementia and Alzheimer's. This is what's detected by the scanner. Specific biomarkers like amyloid and tau can be found through PET imaging, but these aren't the only targets we can use to identify neurodegenerative disease. Many are still unknown to us we might start to discover them with new imaging agents currently in development. These agents could be extremely useful for making our diagnoses even more precise in the future. We will always need data from our imaging scans, blood tests, and psychological reports in our work on cognitive decline. Yet we are beginning to appreciate other areas of technology in our management of brain diseases. Wearable technologies and brain training apps could become a real asset for us to understand the effects that lifestyle and the environment have on our brain health. The kinds of real-life data we can get from a wearable device could be extremely useful, particularly during a time like the COVID pandemic, when it wasn't always easy for patients to get to a clinic. I think we've learned during the COVID pandemic that we have to think about assessment in different ways using telemedicine, video-based uh, telemedicine strategies, smartphones, you know, tablets, internet-based testing. All of that's likely to uh, increase tremendously. This is Professor Andy Sakin. He's Professor of Radiology and Imaging Sciences at Indiana University School of Medicine in Indianapolis. I asked Andy about the potential for wearable technologies to detect and monitor signs of cognitive decline. Mobile devices and wearables and smart apartments and all kinds of things that collect large-scale data really show a lot of promise. And they can point to very novel ways of looking at things that uh, just were not appreciated using the tools we had previously. 
In fact, one of the most powerful assessment strategies now is digital speech analysis. So I think all kinds of uh, sampling from wearable devices, could be audio, video uh, input, measuring other sensory modalities, which may show early changes, biorhythms from uh, measuring activity, patterns of activity over time and how they might change, all could be uh, very informative. Wearable devices show real potential for bringing patients closer to their doctors and improving care in multiple ways. This potential is all the more apparent when we consider just how much a diagnosis for brain disease can severely damage a patient's self-image and how they feel about their place in society. Not to mention the recent extreme changes to our environment that makes living with these diseases even harder than it is already. So imagine all of a sudden having no perfect control over your body. Society is all of a sudden treating you as disabled. Niccolò Zarati is a chartered psychologist in the UK and a former research associate at Lancaster University. We're living more isolated lives. Scientists are predicting that we are entering an era of pandemics. What is your perspective of these social and global changes and the impact on neurodegenerative diseases? We did some research along with Parkinson's UK on the impact of COVID-19 and the restrictions around COVID-19 on people with Parkinson's. And what emerged is that it really had a combined effect on the psychological difficulties that people with Parkinson's tend to experience. People tend to feel less in control, more isolated, less capable of leading their life as they used to. If on top of that you add global pandemic, the needs that you have are still the same, if not even more. You still need to take the wide range of medications on a daily basis that you used to take before, but now you might have issues accessing them. You don't want to risk going to a hospital because of the risk of getting infected. And that's what we found in their experience. Now, all of a sudden, they have to deal with a global pandemic. It isn't always easy to see patients in person. If technologies could give doctors access to real-time patient data, those doctors might be able to deliver care more quickly and accurately. This might help to soften both the biological and the psychological impacts of the disease. There are a number of devices that allow people with Parkinson's to eat more effectively because they developed spoons or forks of cutlery that actually counteract the tremors and makes it easier to eat, keeping their hands stabilized. Niccolò Zarati also considered how devices could help patients manage their treatments. As part of his research, Niccolò has looked into dietary changes for people with ALS a type of motor neuron disease. Now, we know that people who are diagnosed with ALS tend to be hypermetabolic, which means they burn through calories like children. And that tends to be linked with much shorter survival. So losing around 10% of your weight within one year of diagnosis, improving lifestyle changes in people with ALS is implementing a high-calorie diet, which can become very difficult to do especially in the world that we live in today, where there's health eating advice everywhere. We are talking with people who for their entire lives have been told, well, you, you need to avoid greasy, fatty food, ice cream and things like that. But actually now telling them, well, no, this is what you need can become quite difficult. Using technology to set reminders to make counting calories easier could be an effective avenue. 
the field is really excited about the possibility of these technologies really adding to the information that we are able to detect the way that people's behavior changes in later life as they're starting to struggle with memory problems. Yet to get there, we still have to find ways around basic practical obstacles. For instance, some patients will simply struggle with using wearable tech. We did a small sort of internal survey within our own memory clinic population at the beginning of the pandemic as we were trying to understand what level of access people have to standard technology that you and me have around us all the time. We asked them simply, do you have access to these sorts of technologies? And that was computer, tablet, smartphone. How confident do you feel using them? And how confident would you feel having an appointment with your doctor through these technologies? And we found out from that that it's actually about 50% of individuals who have access to either a computer or a tablet or a phone and are sort of confident about using them. That leaves 50% of people who don't have access to those things and don't feel confident using them. And that's a really big problem in relation to the digital technologies that are being developed at the moment. This isn't only a question of an older generation not being as savvy about using a digital technology. Gen Z is the first generation of digital natives who are well used to technology being a core part of their lives. And even they could find themselves in comparable difficulties later on in life. I think there is reason to be optimistic that a greater fraction of these patient populations will become more comfortable with the use of this technology. But I think it's really important to remember it'll never be 100%. The nature of the conditions that people are suffering from in later life means that they become less confident. So even people that might have been confident about using technology earlier in their lives may lose their confidence as they get older and frailer and more cognitively impaired by the nature of the, of the disorder that we're talking about. I think it's really important that as we're designing these new technologies, we have in mind that it won't work for everybody. And so we always need to have good alternatives. Is it being helped, perhaps, by newer technologies, such as wearable devices or other types of sensors that can collect data perhaps more passively that doesn't require the patient to interact as much? In some ways, this is a kind of a whole new world, and in some ways, we don't know what we don't know yet. But nevertheless, two things in particular come to mind. Number one is the cognitive testing. So the cognitive assessments that we do in the clinic can definitely be transferred to being performed using technology. Lots of people do that already. Number two, I think, is some way of assessing activities of daily living. So, for example, one's ability to go to the shops to do one's own shopping. You could imagine that could be mapped using the sort of GPS type functionality that's on your phone. Other things like getting dressed in the morning or being able to do your washing, those sorts of things. This needs to be handled really sensitively, but nevertheless, you could imagine that being passively monitored by some sorts of sensors in the household. It's always important that we find a way to tailor our technology to the patient's needs. And this becomes all the more essential when we ask patients to allow monitoring into their own homes. We're all used to our phones pinging us, giving us advice about various things, you know, do more steps, move, it's time to get up and stretch, etc. I think the tailoring both to the individual and then to the individual circumstances will be the key to success of that sort of technology. I might even have a preference for a certain piece of information to be delivered first thing in the morning when I wake up, and I might completely ignore that same advice if it's delivered to me mid-afternoon when I'm having a post-lunch slump, for example.
the global population is growing. We are also living longer. And with this aging global population, neurodegenerative diseases are expected to increase significantly. By 2050, it's projected that over 150 million people could be affected by dementia alone. We are just under three decades away from a figure that will have considerable impact on the health system, and by extension, on the patients and the people who care for them. Many of us will already have a parent or an aunt who suffers from neurodegeneration. So, even if we are not diagnosed with, say, Parkinson's or motor neuron disease, such diseases affect us all. And research shows that some lifestyle factors that contribute to them can be out of our hands. We are now starting to find out that there are some environmental conditions that can very much increase the risk to develop Parkinson's disease. So one of these is pesticides, and the European Union has banned many pesticides that are known to be harmful and are now known to increase the risk of Parkinson's disease further down the way. But other parts of the world, many of these pesticides are actually still used, they're not illegal, and they have been linked with increased risk of Parkinson's disease in the US population. There is this idea that, at least partially, Parkinson's could be a man-made disease and could turn into a man-made pandemic if we do not pay attention to the links that are emerging with environmental factors, such as the use of pesticides. It's never just nature or nurture, is it? It's the combination of both. I think that that's where our strength could be in the future, so trying to understand the intersectionality of these factors and potentially find ways to reduce the risk or to fight the conditions. It is therefore a critical time for global action in finding ways to reduce the negative effects of our environment and lifestyle on our brain health. How can we prepare the medical profession and governments for the growing number of people with dementia and other neurodegenerative diseases? Yes, we have an aging population and that means that the incidence of dementia increases somewhat. But probably as much of a challenge is that as the nature of the population that is aging changes, people should expect to be properly assessed, properly diagnosed and then followed up in terms of putting together care packages, etc. We have a potential solution that we're working on myself in Oxford and with colleagues from around the UK of are developing this idea of creating brain health clinics. And these are either alongside or perhaps part of what we would think of as the standard memory clinic pathway for people with cognitive problems that occur in later life. And in particular, what we're trying to do is have research aligned very closely with the clinical service such that patients have access to higher quality assessments as standard and research quality assessments as extras as they're coming through their standard clinical pathway so that patients can benefit much more quickly than they would otherwise. Earlier in the program, I mentioned the multiple types of information we ideally need to make an accurate assessment and diagnosis. Claire Mackay's team at Oxford is trying to streamline these data pathways so that patients can get access to care and treatment much more quickly. This is real progress, and yet we must not forget the time that is needed to make sure that the clinical environment is equipped to deliver new treatments. 
it's really important that we put some of that energy into improving the services that people are being seen in. Because at the moment, if a new drug landed tomorrow, our services are completely not set up to deliver that treatment to patients. So at some point, there's going to have to be a bit of a revolution in the way that the services are delivered as well, so that we are ready when those disease-modifying therapies arrive. Of course, many medical technologies are designed to deliver faster, more integrated, and more accurate diagnoses and treatments to patients. Whether we're talking about wearables or integrated digital solutions to ease the way we process and share information, what remains is that we stay aware of the technologies on offer and how we can create solutions for this global issue. There's a literal explosion of measurement strategies using various kinds of novel creative technology that are tantalizing in terms of showing promise. On the other hand, many of them really are not well understood in terms of their properties and how applicable they'll be to all the problems of early detection, longitudinal monitoring, applicability to diverse populations. I worry about this and my colleagues at other centers worry about this because we want to make sure that the technology is available to everyone who can benefit from it. We should also ensure that the primary goal to improve brain health remains firmly in our sights. I personally feel overwhelmed by the choice. One of the really important considerations is which stage of the new degenerative process you're targeting these tools at. So a lot of the tools that I see are targeted at the sort of early phase, you know, before somebody has a diagnosis, really. So people wanting to look after their brain health in midlife, I suppose, onwards. But they're not necessarily well designed for patients who are already cognitively impaired. And the design processes for those two sorts of populations is probably really quite different. So it's not going to work to try and shoehorn one into the other. You need to have technology that's actually designed for the patient population you're targeting it at. It's less about who's got the snazziest piece of technology. It's who's got the best quality evidence that it's going to have an impact in patient outcomes. Next time on Healthcare Perspectives, why is it so important that we can detect the early signs of Alzheimer's disease? We don't know how to fix the brain once those neurons have died. And what we're hopeful for is to be able to identify very early on those people who might be starting to be at risk. If we can give that medication earlier, when we know that they're at risk and prevent the damage from building up, then I think we really will be seeing something that could be a, a cure or a prevention for Alzheimer's disease. Find out the methods we use to identify the early signs of neurodegenerative disease and where our guests are taking research into early onset Alzheimer's in our next episode. You've been listening to Healthcare Perspectives, a podcast by Siemens Health and Years. We pioneer breakthroughs in healthcare for everyone, everywhere. Subscribe to us and always get the latest episode in your podcast feed. Or visit siemens-healthandyears.com slash podcast for more. The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Siemens Health and Years.